1: Father, we come into Your presence, acknowledging that You are indeed great and greatly to be praised. And Lord, now as so many head off to this uh, this morning's Vacation Bible School, would You make that clear in their different pieces of uh, their program this morning? Make it clear that You are great and greatly to be praised pray for those who are working there that you would move in their hearts and cause them to wonder at you, but particularly for the children who are there of all different ages, would you be alive and active? Commission your spirit to move there to show them your wonder. And, Father, would you do that in this room as well? You're not limited by space. You can do it here and there and in every church around the world. At the same time, we ask you to do that. Would you show your wonder to us? Would you lift up in our eyes Christ? He is great and greatly to be praised and you are highly concerned that he be exalted in our minds and hearts, but Lord, we need your spirit for that, so please commission him to do that work in our midst here this morning. In my life as I preach, in my friends' lives as they listen. Lift him up, I pray. Cause us to see and to love him. Bend our hearts towards him. Give us that grace, we ask, that he would be exalted and that we would be blessed by knowing him and knowing him more deeply and knowing him more profoundly. Make that come about, Lord, we pray. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. have you ever had this sort of experience in your life I keep all my assorted sprinkler parts in a great big plastic bucket and every time I need to fix something with my sprinkler system which is relatively frequent I take the bucket and I dump the whole thing out on the driveway or in the grass or wherever near the problem and I start rummaging looking for the part it's gotta be here I look and I look I need a, a half inch right angle threaded on one side not on the other I'll check all the galvanized and the black plastic and the PVC and the galvanized and the PVC and the black plastic back and forth and back and forth it's got to be here this one's three quarters close this one's threaded on both ends close it's got to be there it is I must have held it in my hand three or four times because I looked at every single piece again and again it's happened to me so many times that I just believe it's here somewhere And when I find out that it actually isn't, I'm surprised. It's there. It's got to be there. But I miss it because of all the other junk in that bucket. All the other stuff that clutters and clouds my view. It's right there, but I don't see it. You ever had that experience in your life? Looking for something right there, but because of everything else that's right there, you don't see it? Jesus... Is the fulfillment of what every one of us are actually looking for, and He's right here. But so often we miss Him, we don't see Him because of all the other stuff in the bucket. He's right there. He's right here, right now. You can you see Him? But He's right here. But you don't, and most don't, and most then miss Him and miss life. Life everlasting and life here right now. So, we're going to consider this morning as we look again at Acts chapter 16. Last week, you we looked at the big picture in this whole chapter because, as I said, 6 to 40, it's a long section, but the whole thing forms one kind of big picture that we need to look at, and we see it in each of the three main characters in this chapter. People who are all very different coming from very different ethnic and cultural and religious and financial backgrounds. All of them very different, but God moves in and saves each one of them and then pulls them together to save them to be a people. Individuals saved and then a people saved. So the main point from last week was that when Christ is lifted up, when God lifts up His Son, He draws all people together, all sorts of different people together to form a new people. So we looked at last week, and this week, as I said last week i 'm going to focus again on the same chapter, but a little bit more detailed I'm going to look at a, a portion of the chapter focusing on a couple of smaller points. So the same chapter, different emphasis it's, it's similar, it's the same chapter, but it's going to be a little different emphasis I'm going to be looking at verses 16 to 34 this week. i 'm going to read them in a minute, but before I do. Let me set up the context a little bit for those who weren't here last week or in case you've forgotten by chance. The chapter begins with Paul and Silas traveling through what would be modern Turkey and they are headed west. And in verses 6 to 10, we see God very deliberately, very pointedly acting to steer them, forbidding them from going here and then forbidding them from going there and then calling them over to here and giving them a vision. It's clear that God's hand is involved in steering them and they end up in the city of philippi on the continent of europe first time the gospels crossed over to europe and there in philippi verses 11 to 15 they go searching for people who would be either jews or god fears gentiles who were worshiping sort of like jews but there weren't very many in that city and so they wasn't even a synagogue and they go outside the city walls to find a place of prayer and there they run into some gentile women who were worshiping the god of the bible one of them named lydia They preach to her, the Lord opens her heart, she believes. And then eventually persuades them to come stay at her house and use her house as the kind of the base from which they can go out to constantly evangelize the city of Philippi. So they're staying there at her house, traveling out regularly, which brings us to our passage for this morning. I'm going to read verses 16 to 34. I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to summarize that again, again because not everybody was here last week. Then I'm going to make three observations from those verses. So let me read Acts 16, verse 16 to 34. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, "'These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation.' And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks about midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened when the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped but Paul cried out with a loud voice do not harm yourself for we're all here and the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear he fell down before Paul and Silas Then he brought them out and said sirs what must I do to be saved As the missionary team is repeatedly traveling out from Lydia's house back to the riverside to, to preach, they eventually pick up this fifth member of their team, this demon-possessed slave girl. She follows them around. She, she has this, this spirit, this demon in her that enables her to know the future. The demon knows the future, his spiritual power. He communicates it to her. She tells it to people who come and pay money. It's a, it's a money-making business for her owners, not for her. She's just a tool. And she's following them around. and She's crying out, these men right here, they're servants of the Most High God, and they know the way of salvation. She's doing that again and again and again. And eventually, they get fed up. It's a true message. As I mentioned last week, they don't accept that testimony. The apostles don't want to accept that testimony because it's from a demon and that would be giving legitimization to the demon. Jesus doesn't need the demon's help. Jesus doesn't want to put the demon up on any kind of a medium pedestal. Hey, I know know things. Come to me. That's that's been the demon's whole game. I know stuff. Come to me. Jesus is not going to play that game. And he throws him out of the woman. Yeah, it's Paul's words, but it's in the name of Jesus. It's Jesus' power. And that aggravates the slave girl's owner. Slave girl's owners. Paul's just killed their cash cow. So they get angry, and they drag him before the magistrates, and they lie. These men are advocating things that are unlawful for us. They're disturbing the peace. No, they aren't. They're perfectly in in line with the law. The only thing they're disturbing is their business. That's the charge, and they whip the crowd into a frenzy, and they join in attacking Paul, and the officials beat them and imprison them, thinking that'll put a stop to it. But as they lock them up in prison, Paul and Silas are filled with rejoicing. They are praying and singing hymns to God in the dungeon, in the inner part of the prison that's probably totally dark, having been severely beaten, locked up in the stocks, in the dark, who knows what tomorrow holds. They sing in praise, and the other prisoners are listening. And then the earthquake comes. The hand of God working here to validate his message, this is a sign. They cast out a demon in my name, you beat them and imprison them, I break them free. But they don't sneak away in the night, they stay right there. Victorious. We're not running away, we're we're triumphing here. Which gets the jailer's attention because he thinks that everybody's going to run away of course. He's about to kill himself because, as I mentioned last week, according to Roman law, if a a jailer or a guard loses his prisoners. He's responsible for their sentence, and in this case it would have been death. It's hard to imagine the shock going on in this man's mind. He goes to bed content in life, wakes up in the middle of the night realizing life is about to end. Circumstances of life have drastically changed for him. But Paul speaks up, we're all here, He now has the jailer's attention. The man had heard. He he had heard about the message that the girl was proclaiming. They know the way of salvation. We know that because he asks Paul and Silas, what do I have to do to be saved? What's the deal with what you guys are talking about? Didn't care when he went to bed, now he does. So Paul tells him, don't do anything, believe. And he's saved, and his sorrow is turned to rejoicing. Verse 34, he and his whole household rejoiced that he had believed in God. It's as far as we're going this morning. I'm going to focus on that section. I'm going to make three observations from that piece of text. And together, I make this point. So here's the main idea for this morning. Christ reigns supreme for your joy. Unless you miss it. Christ reigns supreme and that'll be joy to you unless you overlook him because of all the other stuff out there clouding your view Don't do that see him see him high lifted up in this passage for your joy Make three observations towards that end the first point The first observation is a necessary partner to what I said last week Last week I emphasized God. We see God throughout this whole chapter. God at work to lift up Christ. God is working to lift up Christ because He has a heart to save people. As we talked about last week. He's lifting Him up because He wants to deliver. A necessary partner to that is this observation here this morning. God, here's the first observation, God is working to lift up Christ so as to show the actual supremacy of Christ. Let me explain. Here's what I mean. More than just God lifting up Christ for the sake of saving people, God is lifting up Christ because it is right and proper to exalt that which is exalted. If there weren't any people at all anywhere, God would still work to lift up Christ because He is the exalted one. He is supreme over all things. He is the King in all the realms of creation. When He first came to earth, that was not obvious because He came so humble and low. He came taking on the form of a man, even the form of a servant, so humble as even to submit Himself to death at the hands of His creatures, crucified, by those He made. But, as Ephesians 1 puts it, an immeasurably great power worked in Christ, raising Him up from the dead and seating Him at the right hand of God, seating Him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He has put everything under His feet. Ephesians 1. Such is the supremacy of Christ. He reigns. Like a conquering king, he has put all of his enemies under his foot. His name is above every other name, absolutely every other name. He is seated in the heavenlies, reigning above all authority and power. Those are spiritual authorities and powers. Angels as well as demons. He reigns. He is the King. And yet here on earth, we don't always see that, do we? Here on the earth, that vast reign has not been fully actualized, realized. I don't mean just understood, I mean made real and tangible, made actual, put into effect. It will one day. He is going to bring all things to heal under the authority of Christ. That hasn't happened yet. God is working to bring that about. That's what's going on in verses 16 to 18. This is a power encounter. An authority question. Who reigns over the creation? And if you were to walk into Philippi and bump into this slave girl, you would say, the demon does. He possesses her. It possesses her. It knows the future. It controls her, steers her, gives her utterances. She speaks. She's a tool. She's a conduit for this demon's power. She reigns. It reigns over her. And through it, at Satan behind the demon. That sort of thing was common throughout the whole Mediterranean world. We see it repeatedly in the book of Acts. Remember chapter 8? Simon the magician, he's a sorcerer. Certainly there are people who are making stuff up, engaged in a big charade, a pretend thing, but there are also people who have real power. Simon was called the Great Power. People were around him for years and saw him do remarkable things. Simon. How about on Cyprus? Paul and Barnabas on Cyprus. Who'd they meet there? Elemus, the magician. Chapter 19, we'll come to Ephesus and see that there's a whole host of people engaged in the magic arts. Sorcery and spells. They have books. This thing's very common over the Mediterranean world at that time. It's common today. In America, let alone in the nations of the world, there is a power. There is power out there that is beyond, that is different than the power of muscle and sword and dollar. It is Spirit power there's another realm there's a physical realm the stuff we see right here There is a spiritual realm and there is a real power in that spiritual realm It's true Acts makes that very clear there is an enemy But acts is also making clear like in this passage that this is not a dualistic world in which this power, the the power of Satan, the power of the demon, and the power of God, the power of darkness and light and evil and good, they're in a tug of war, and sometimes this one triumphs, and sometimes that one triumphs. That's a dualistic world. Dual, two powers, tugging. That's not the case. This is not a two-way, three-way, ten-way tug of war. There is one king, Christ, and he reigns, whenever and wherever He chooses, and He is subjugating all powers, bringing them gradually bit by bit to heal. And we see that here. He's showing His supremacy, enacting His reign. He is the Most High God to whom we must be reconciled. He is the One who is Creator and Judge and, thank God, also Deliverer. He is the one who will put an end to all rebellion. He reigns. And he shows that here by accepting no part, no share with this demon, but on command expelling him, throwing him out. You have to read this and see the authority of Christ. To see the tug of war that is not actually a tug of war. It is a one-way tug of war. When Christ decides to triumph, He triumphs because He is supreme. He's making that clear here. But this is more than just a display of the supreme power and authority of Christ. As we said last week, it is also a display of the supreme love and grace and mercy of Christ. He delivers the slave girl. He is acting to deliver Graciously ending her dominance by this demon, ending her human exploitation. This is the supremacy of Christ in His authority and power and it's the supremacy of Christ in His love and mercy. It is the supremacy of Christ. All things under His feet for His glory and for our good. See that. Behold it. Love it. Love him for it. Do you The slave girls girls owners didn't. They stood right there and they missed it. Which brings us to our second point. Verse eighteen. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour, verse 19, and when her owners saw this, they broke out in praise and thanksgiving because God in Christ had worked deliverance from the evil one. Hallelujah. No. That's not what it says. Not hardly. When they saw, note this, that their hope of gain was gone, They got angry and dragged them off to the authorities. The text is underlining the point about financial gain. Back in verse 16, she had provided much gain for them and now they saw that their gain was gone. They didn't see Christ as supreme in His power and in His merciful love. They saw the money dry up and they got angry. So here's the second observation. Well, God is lifting up Christ right in front of your eyes. Beware. Beware the deceptive power of money to cloud your sight of Christ. Money is powerful, and it can deceive you very subtly. I don't mean just cash, I mean wealth. The means we use to acquire stuff. It has a power on us. It'll block your sight of Christ if you're not careful. It'll cloud your vision. It'll fill up your life with all kinds of other stuff, and you'll miss Him. Beware. The slave girl's following these guys around. She's saying, There's the way of salvation. These guys know it again and again and again. Her owners hear that. And then, right in front of their eyes, they know who did it, they know how they did it. Right in front of their eyes, they see some powerful evidence of the truth of what she's saying. It's right in front of them, right there. But their eyes are on the money, and they couldn't care less about spiritual realities. God, Christ, some of the biggest, the largest realities of all of human existence. Creation, accountability, death, judgment, eternal reward and joy or eternal sorrow and loss, they do not care. It's not on their minds. Show me the money. It's the only thing they're thinking about. That's their, that's their complete perspective. Why? Why are they so focused on money? Well, for the same reasons that we are. This is not at all unique to them. This is human. Human beings, us, we get distracted by money. We turn to, we are tempted to worship, chase after, follow money and wealth because of all that it promises to give us. We chase after and become mesmerized by money because we want what it seems it can give us. We want security and health and companionship and pleasure and prestige and fun. And money offers all those things. And all those things, you'll note, are right here on this plane. None of them are like this. All of them are right here on this plane. And we human beings in our fallenness love to take into our hands the ability to make stuff happen and to secure our lives. What we're doing is we're piling stuff into the bucket. Some of it's junk and we shouldn't have it all. A lot of it's good. In itself, there's nothing wrong with health. Or companionship nothing wrong with many of those things the problem is we get them out of order, and they block our view We pile them in and we become concerned with them and focused with them And we miss the point that as the writer of Ecclesiastes says all this stuff is meaningless Vanity vanity emptiness, but we chase it though emptiness Slave owners are chasing the wind And they miss Christ If you think about it, the jailer is dealing with the very same problem Because actually, though I've mentioned money And the focus with the slave owners is on money Money's not really the issue It's that stuff that money gets us They want more The jailer, by all accounts, seems to be content with what he has Life's just moving on He doesn't care about the message that he's heard through the slave girl these guys are talking about. He doesn't care about it either. He's still focused on things on this realm right here, this world. Mercifully, God's going to open his eyes. But before we turn to that, we need to think about this ourselves. Some of us here this morning, I don't know everybody here, but some of us here this morning, I'm sure, are so blinded by the pursuit of money and the things of the world, the stuff the money can give us, you're so blinded by that that it's keeping you from Christ entirely. Your God is right here. And you work, and you save, and you worry, and you strive, and you fight for stuff here. And it is hollow. It cannot deliver, and it does not satisfy. May you realize, like the writer of Ecclesiastes, that guy, Ecclesiastes, he accumulated everything. He makes a point of saying, I went on a pursuit to get everything that human beings can have. And he lists it all. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, if you want to read it. He lists it all. And at the end, he says, I denied myself nothing that the human heart wants, and I found it to be empty. Some of us think that if we get a little more, then we'll arrive. A little more and we'll be happy. It's not true. We're chasing after those things. And you're missing the one who himself said, I will be for you pleasure and joy and life forevermore. Not because of what he gives us, but because he himself is that. Relationship with he himself. Let me explain what I mean by that. Think about a relationship that you have with another human being. Perhaps you're married with a spouse or you have some kids or you have a, a solid good friend. You don't like that person because they play tennis with you or because they cook well. You like that person because you like that person. You sit on the couch with them and you enjoy relationship with them. Not because of the stuff, but because of them. You like them. That, to a much higher degree, is what I'm talking about when Christ says that I myself will be for you joy and life. Not because of what He gives, but because He Himself, you in relationship with Him, is what your heart is made for. And you can have it. How? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust Him and His death on the cross to remove your sin penalty and make you right with God. Turn to Christ, the Supreme One. You'll find the satisfaction that your heart is looking for that you cannot find In anything here, the big screen TV, the car, the club membership, the house, the vacation, all the friends in the world, the prestigious job, none of that satisfies the heart. And none of it delivers you to life everlasting. Turn to Christ. Some of us, as many of us here who are already Christians I know, some of you, and I, and I know this because I am you, I, I'm one of the us I'm talking about. We still struggle with this. Even Christians, especially Christians in places of wealth like the United States, we still live in a tug of war. Christ and the stuff of life. Money, yeah, but the stuff of life. I don't just mean the material things that you accumulate in the garage. I mean the stuff of life. We give our hearts and our time to many good things. We get them out of order. We miss Christ. We still struggle with that. I know some of you, and if you gave a tenth of the amount of time you gave to your work or your hobbies a third of it, a tenth of it, whatever, just some portion, some small portion of the time that you mentally and physically give to pursuing the things of the world, you would meet God in an alarming way and He'd satisfy your heart. Because I'm a Christian and because many of you are Christians, I know something of how you think and I know that you hear that and it sounds right to you because it is right. It sounds right, but you don't really see it. Because it sounds in a lot of ways like another ought. I know that I ought to give half, a third, a tenth of the time that I give to all this stuff to pursuing Christ. I ought to do that, of course. Man, that sounds boring. But I I mean it sounds like it would be good, but it sounds really boring. I read my Bible and it's boring pray and it's boring but man I believe that when Christ said that in the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures forevermore that's in the Bible it's true I just don't feel that I don't experience that what's the deal two quick comments on that one it is an ought We are to delight ourselves in the Lord. It's a command. There's all kinds of stuff in the Bible that says you ought to give your heart to Him. It is an ought. So, Christian, in the power of the Spirit, make a decision. Get up, read your Bible, pray. I might suggest getting with other people to do that. Talking over a passage, praying with them, that that helps. But beyond that, there's something else that we need to face. We need grace from God. We need grace from God to turn the heart so that the ought becomes a want to. So that the drudgery becomes joy. That requires grace. We pray, God, change me. God, change Change me, not I'm going to change myself this afternoon. God, change me. Give grace. Pray. Ask Him to move, to clear out the clutter and to show Himself to you. He will do that. He will come. Maybe not exactly when you think or in exactly the way you think, but He will. Seek Him for grace to change you in this passage the third observation now shows us one way that sometimes he does that the third observation comes out of Paul and Silas's punishment at the hands of the authorities as well as the initial despair of the jailer I'm gonna make this observation but I wanna preface it with a comment that this might seem difficult so hang with it and, and think it through Might be difficult though to understand at first hard to accept, so here's the observation third one God intends That there be suffering in the world So as to show the surpassing worth of Christ God intends that there be suffering in this world, so as to show the surpassing worth of Christ, both the Christians and those who are not yet Christians. Obviously, there's suffering in the world. The difficult part of that statement is the God intends part of it. It's a little challenging. Understand. When I say that, it's very different You've got to get this important line here it's, That's very different God intends to be suffering It's very different than saying that He is evil And sadistic and sinfully responsible for suffering in the world Those are two different things There are people and powers and forces That are responsible for evil and suffering Morally responsible What I'm saying is that God intends that that happen There's a difference there Look at this story right here. Paul and Silas, they suffer, right? Physically suffering, emotionally suffering. That's clear. They're beaten. They're attacked by a crowd. They're imprisoned. They have no idea what tomorrow holds as they're sitting in this jail cell. Obviously, they are suffering. Why? Because God sovereignly exercised His authority to expel that demon. That's what got them there and there is no way on earth that we can conceive of God, directing them, not here, not here, but over here, come over to Philippi, preach to this woman, stay in this house, cast this demon out, whoops. Did not perceive how her owners would feel about that. Slipped up. No way. God knew that was going to happen. And if you or I or God knows that a particular course of action is going to produce a specific result, and we still do that particular course of action, we are intending to get that result. He intends that they go to prison beaten. Now, the authorities and the owners, they're morally responsible for it, but God intended that happen. Think back. Acts chapter 4. The apostles in the church pray about God's sovereign divine plan intending the evil of the cross for which Pilate and Herod are responsible. Think back further. We go back to Genesis chapter 50. Joseph saying to his brothers, the very end of the book of Genesis, you meant it for evil when you sold me into slavery. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Not God turned it after the fact. He meant in the same way you meant. Same thing. The Bible's really clear. He meant it. They're responsible. He meant the cross. They're responsible. He meant the imprisonment, but they're responsible. God means, He intends that there be suffering. Clear for Paul and Silas. By the same logic, same thing's going on with the jailer. He means for the jailer to be brought to this point of anguish and complete despair. God's aware of Roman law. God's aware of what it will look like when the prison's broken apart. It'll look like they've all escaped. God's aware of what the jailer will think that means for him in his life in a couple of hours. He does it anyway. He intends to bring him to the point of absolute despair, despairing even of life he intends that there be suffering why because suffering can lead to seeing suffering can lead to seeing verses 22 to 24 happen so that verse 25 would happen the earthquake happens so that the jailer will be made aware, I am in the presence. I heard about this talk about salvation and whatnot, and now I am aware that I am in the presence of something different. And he comes trembling and he falls down before him. What must I do to be saved? Gets his attention. Paul and Silas, after being attacked and beaten and the stock slammed down around their ankles, they're in the dungeon literally at the darkest hour at midnight, not after they're released before they have any idea what is actually going to happen, break out in praise. They see something. They find something there. They experience. Relationship with Him is enough. Christ is sufficient for me. Here when I have nothing, what does Paul own in the world? Nothing. Not a thing. He's locked up in a jail in a place he's never been. He owns the clothes on his body. If they gave him back after they ripped him off, I'm not sure. He owns nothing and breaks out in praise. He knows not what tomorrow holds. He breaks out in worship because he finds Christ is enough. And the other guys in the cell, they are listening and they find it too. If you're sitting in your barca lounger in your den with a 32-ounce big gulp and a huge thing of popcorn and a big-screen TV with your favorite sports event on, you say, Christ is sufficient for me. (laughs) Your non-Christian neighbor in your wife's barca lounger with his 32-ounce big gulp, his popcorn, who loves the same sport event, saying, my life's pretty good too. What's the difference? doesn't see anything there. But if you're sitting in a dungeon, beaten and not knowing if you're going to make it through tomorrow alive, and you find Christ sufficient, you see something, and so does that guy. He sees it in you. That is different, remarkable. And God intends the suffering of Paul and Silas to show Paul and Silas something and to show everybody else in the cell something. He intends the suffering of the jailer to show the jailer something. Suffering is intended by God to display the sufficiency of Christ, His immeasurable worth, His heart-sustaining splendor. It's the grace of God in suffering. What's the point here? God is working to show the true supremacy of Christ. And we sometimes miss it because of all the junk. Junk or good things piled in the bucket on top. And so in mercy and grace, sometimes God throws everything else out except Christ so we can see him. Brothers and sisters, friends, if you're not a Christian, I would suggest to you that that would be the best thing he could do for your life. He he might not have to do it that way, but the best thing he can do for your life is to show you Christ. Maybe in suffering, there's a hundred other ways he can do it. May he give you grace to show you Christ. Randy Alcorn, in his book, The Treasure Principle, tells a story about how while serving as a pastor at a large church and making a good salary and earning several book royalties, he'd written a number of books already, he's making a fair amount of money. He's also serving as the head of a crisis pregnancy center. While, while in, kind of in that place in life, things going really well, he got involved in some peaceful Protests against abortion and one thing led to another you can read all the details in the book but in the end he found himself under an 8.2 million dollar legal judgment which rocked their financial world as you might imagine I'm not sure there are very many of us that could face an 8.2 million dollar judgment and slough it off totally changed their lives and he writes in the book by all appearances and certainly by the world's standards our lives had taken a devastating turn right wrong it was one of the best things that ever happened to us and he goes on to explain a little bit of why because of what they saw about God's provision and his care for them and his sufficiency for them interestingly They didn't actually learn, intellectually learn, anything new. He'd been preaching about all that stuff. He'd written books about all that stuff. God's ownership of all things. If God wants to remove this from me, he can. It's his. He'd written about all that stuff, but he saw it in a different way and saw Christ as sufficient for him in a different way. God is caring and providing for him in a different way. It was the best thing that ever happened to us. God emptied out the bucket and threw everything away. Praise God. I don't don't know if He's going to do that with me or with you. And that's not really the point. Because God also gives many good things to us to enjoy. The point is, may He order your seeing. So when you look at all the stuff that one jumps right out, right away, and controls how you look at everything else. Christ reigns supreme for your joy if you don't overlook Him. Let me pray. Father, we pray... Thank you for giving us Christ. Thank you for making us a way to be joined to you. And we now pray, would you show him to us? Pray that for myself, for my brothers and sisters here, and for those who are not yet in your family. Would you show us Christ, supreme, reigning over all things, in power and authority and supreme in love and in mercy and grace. Show Him to us, I pray. Bind our wandering hearts to Him. Do that in our hearts, Lord. May You be exalted by it. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.